0: hey there history fans
1: and welcome back to the history explains it all podcast where we cover a variety of historical topics from the stone age to the modern age
0: i'm lauren uh,
1: i'm melissa and on today's episode we are covering you want me to do this one
0: no you got it i don't know but we'll find out won't we the theater du grand Guignon. Okay, close enough just expect me not to say it in the proper pronunciation okay french is not my language at all
1: if you enjoyed today's episode please feel free to leave us a rate in review on apple podcast
0: wow we're doing great for this episode
1: i think we're gonna be a bit silly and i think both of us need a little more caffeine
0: hence i have tea in front of me as i speak yeah not enough i need my espresso and, and I have it in a mummy cup, by the way.
1: Mm-hmm. Speaking of mummies, welcome to our first episode of October, where we were definitely becoming a variety of historical horror topics this month.
0: Scary, scary,
1: gruesome, scary, horrific, macabre, all the fun stuff.
0: All of it. Just all of it. It's all gonna be here this month. Enjoy it. <laughs> Full episodes every week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh lord all right you can also contact us
0: you can also contact us through our email at history explains at gmail.com
1: you can also go to our facebook and instagram pages, which is history explains all underscore podcast
0: Yes, don't forget to visit our Instagram page for our Today in History segment, our Archaeology in the News segment, and to vote on upcoming episode topics, which we will again pick up in November at the end of this month of October so that you you pick one of the episodes for the month of November.
1: Should I get a disclaimer now? Oh yeah, please. <laughs> I'm going to have so much fun with the episode. All right, quick disclaimer. This episode is not, for the faint of heart and is not for anyone who's interest not interested in blood and guts and gore who is squeamish on those topics anyone with little ears running around pretty much if you're not really into horror films and horror theater this might not be the episode for you we are going fairly gruesome on this topic it, uh, the grand grunel actually is referred to as french horror theater and it is quite graphic and some of its
0: descriptions so fair warning yeah and if you do want to stay and you have young kids put in headphones just you don't want them to hear this
1: oh that's how i was going that i was just say if you're twisted and, and dark like well at least like i am and and, and enjoy this episode
0: wow. you love this topic this is interesting for me, but I don't love it as much as you do. Oh, you I know, chose it. this topic, yeah. I'm, I'm like, okay. I have a feeling I'll be grossed out by the end of this episode. Yep. Thanks. Very much so. All right. Okay. Ready to start this episode? The Théâtre du Grand Guignol is actually the title of the theater that was created by Oscar Matenier. It, who was the original founder. The building was located in Paris, but in a seedy kind of part of Paris, like a dark part of Paris. And that was not considered to be a great neighborhood. It was P- Pigalle. How do you pronounce that? Pigalle?
1: Yeah. Pigalle is also right off uh, it, it, it neighbor's Moulin Rouge. Give yes. Idea. I
0: was going to mention that. My bad. And it, it was known for its horror on stage. Uh, it had seats for patrons between 150 to 293 seats. And most of the time it was packed to the brim, but the translation of the theater's name is the big puppet show. And the shows were out of the ordinary over its long history. And it showed people ranging from the criminal to the homeless and including prop- prostitutes, which th- this wasn't normally shown on stage at this time and it created a lot of censure for this theater especially with there was a lot of police or the kind of kind of like a similar thing as the police force under napoleon the third not napoleon bonaparte don't confuse the two different times <laughs> about
1: a hundred years different
0: yeah exactly but this is Napoleon. This is under Napoleon the that this existed in France, that this theater started. This building is actually an old chapel. in In this neighborhood of Pigeaud, whatever, and because it's an old chapel, high ceilings. These the ceilings are like seven feet high or something like that, and there were also from its days as a chapel, there were also these stone angel statues that were left behind. When Mettenier opened the theater, he left those statues in there. He didn't change that. These statues look down on the audience, and it kind of seems as if they're judging you for watching this. Gives it a little bit more of a f- feeling of doing something you shouldn't be. And in the back of the theater, there were also private boxes that you could get in. You were able to view, and in order to make them private, what they did was create like a, a screen that you could lift up, so that you could see out when you're in the box, but no one can see in.
1: Like a confessional. You,
0: yeah. The idea is like a confessional, and you know there were a lot of things going on back there.
1: The cleaning crew had stories.
0: So did the, so did the people in the, on the stage. Supposedly they even had to stop and be like, you done yet? Yep. <laughs> like, can we continue with our show? And this theater also was described as still having the smell of incense burning from its church days. So it's like you're watching a horror show and sometimes doing the dirty in the back of the theater which was an old church while you're being watched by god's angels (laughs) who can see over your gang screen because they're up there in the ceiling
1: with the potentiality of being raided by the police for censorship
0: yeah with 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 that and the smell of incense from its church days like what a twist. Do you,
1: there, is, there is one thing that this consistently reminds me of. One person I should uh, is say. This an actor? No. no. Well.
0: Who are you talking about?
1: Who is one of my favorite people in French history? Who, oh, Le Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade. I swear, this theater is Marquis de Sade as a theater. The anti-religion, horrifying, graphic,
0: yeah, but he has.
1: of people combined with sex. That is the Marquis de in a nutshell.
0: Yes. Yeah. Sort of but he actually did that to people. This is on theater. At least they didn't actually portray each other physically.
1: No, just people thought they did because the special effects were that amazing. Oh, yeah. Which we'll get
0: that. into. Tell me about Le French stage, please. With my really horrible French accent. <laughs>
1: No problem. So I wanted to be able to give our listeners a bit of a background on French stage theater leading up or at least through the 1800s that leading up into the creation of the Grand Guignol. Um, But I really didn't find a whole lot specifically French theater so i'm going to give you an idea of american and european theaters as it takes place from the early 1800s up into the 1890s just to give an idea of the evolution of theater through the 1800s so in the latter half of the victorian era there was a massive growth in production as we know you've got the industrial revolution so allowed for every day's tours to be done a lot easier, let alone quicker. These developments actually allowed for a lot of Victorians to have more recreational time. And because of this, particularly across Europe and America, many looked to attending theaters as an increasing form of entertainment because now they had a lot more free time. If you were obviously weren't a factory worker, that's a whole different thing. So this in turn gave theaters as a business a major boost in its economy ie you had costume shops you had photography studios boarding houses for the acting troops restaurants catering to the troops and attendees prior to and after the show drama agencies recruiting actors and things like that so at least in the us with the advancement of trains and other various modes of transportation throughout the 1800s many performers Instead of being stationed in one place, can now travel throughout the country as a traveling acting troupe. And this also allowed many playhouses throughout America to actually be built in places where theater may have not even existed before, in terms of as as a means of entertainment. Think the Wild West. Because of this increase in demand for people wanting to attend the theater and have because of the increase in people wanting to attend the theater now that they had a lot more recreation time and at this time in the early 1800s theaters were still a little more hands-on like we talked about in our Shakespeare episode where the crowds and the actors that kind of engage each other in a certain sense but because now you have a lot more people wanting to attend the theater rather than just those that could afford it Many theaters actually began remodeling and becoming much less of the past, which included pits and pews, but now rather installing uh, stall seating with cushions, fancy now, stadium seating for better visibility, ornate hangings and decorations, and actually ventilation systems, so a lot of them were more indoors. And then with these improvements, the attitude of theater growers actually changed from the unruly and loud and possibly riotous crowds at the theaters, See or Shakespeare episode one to more quiet and genteel, essentially give people better and more comfortable seating and you'll have a more compliant crowd. So according to one report regarding American theater in and around the 1850s, actors and actresses had an extremely busy schedule. So around this time on various playbills, you could actually find theaters showing five to six shows per night for the first half of the 1800s towards the end of the latter half it can come down to about one or two shows per night but more likely you were having longer shows two to maybe three hours each show the early playbills themselves because you weren't having such long shows but you were having even more shows meant that the actors and actresses had seasons which started in october that consisted of anywhere between 40 to 130 plays per season, with each actor having to learn minimally 100 roles per season. And the seasons, I think, would typically run about six months uh, October to April ish. One of the most famous American actresses at the time, Charlotte Cushman, was said to have learned over 200 roles. No That's a lot of roles. It's a lot of roles.
0: But it kind of reminds me of movies today. How many, how many movies has Nicolas Cage been in, for example, considering how many roles he's had to learn?
1: Even also, how long is his career? It's over 40 years.
0: I'm just saying it reminds me of how many, like the idea of a lot of having yeah. to go through so many scripts. And, um, Time-wise, that's very different. Yes. That's a short Amount of time to learn two hundred roles. I don't know about films, and as much I
1: know that it's. I think the act, the average. I mean, TV, notwithstanding, film itself. I think the average actor, film-wise, does two films a year, maybe three, because you've got to travel around and do promotions for it, and you've got it. You know, in terms of filming it and everything stage theater was a whole different thing back then. I mean, I, at least for film, if you did five films a year, that's a very busy schedule, but depending on the film, it could take six months to film one single film because you've got production setups and filming requirements and all this, uh, you know, that the behind the scenes stuff can take a long time for the film to actually get filmed. So it, it can vary. So in this case, you're, but you're traveling around to different places as well, too. What really caught my eye was the amount these actors were paid for back then. How much? A lot. Keep going. So it's not uncommon at the time. Again, you're having possibly a hundred roles per give or take six month season. That's just a lot. So it's not uncommon for many of these thespians to learn a part within two or three days, with rare occasions having to learn a part overnight. Uh huh.
0: Overnight, uh-huh. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even remember the first five lines.
1: It depends on the play. It depends on whether your lead, your utility work, your. It depends on your 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 ranking of of actor within the play too. So as I said, they they were played for, despite these incredibly grueling schedules that they had traveling and and everything, they were surprisingly incredibly well-paid. Now, the interesting thing is if you go back and you think about history, people that were considered to be actors or actresses or thespians as a whole, or at least women who were actors, were definitely looked down upon and considered to be prostitutes, but they weren't it was, I guess, I think that mostly goes back to kind of the stage makeup because you had to wear this stage makeup, and not like we go back to our Victorian skincare episode. Everything had to be natural and youthful, and if you added color to your face, you were a whore. But beginner actors could actually earn three to six dollars a week. This is about 1850s money, which equals to about 105 to 210 dollars per week today's money utility actors which were just um uh, what do you call them
0: the people in the background yeah
1: they're they're i can not remember the name um they could typically earn seven to fifteen dollars a week which uh comes to about 245 to 526 dollars today walking actors which are actors that have a specific but non-talking part that would walk across the stage or interact in some way with any of the talking actors could earn $15 to $30 a week, which is $526 to $1,052. And if you're a lead actor, you could earn between $35 to $100 a week and $1,850, which is $1,227 to $3,500 in today's money per week. And if you were a very well-known traveling actor then you have the opportunity to make anywhere between 150 to 500 dollars in 1850 for a seven to ten gate seven to ten day engagement which could come out to between five thousand two hundred and sixty dollars at the low end and seventeen and a half thousand dollars at the high end per seven to ten day engagement could have bought a
0: house then Houses then were rather inexpensive compared to what they are now. I know I could own my own home if I lived in that era and was an actress.
1: Well, yes and no, that's what you got paid, but you also typically had to furnish your own costumes and spend the time doing all of this and then spend the time traveling and probably paying for your own travel as well too. So it was a lot of hard work, even if it didn't look like a lot of hard work, it was incredibly difficult to do at least if you were a traveling theater troupe so now regarding french theater throughout the 1800s melodrama is known as the first type of popular theater in victorian times it actually had its start in around 1766 but it didn't become popular until about the early 1800s so according to one of my sources this is a quote Melodrama involved a plethora of scenic effects and an intensely emotional but codified acting style and a developing stage technology that advanced the arts of theater towards grandly spectacular staging. It was also a highly reactive form of theater, which was con- constantly changing and adapting to new social contexts, new audiences, and new cultural influences. Melodramas, soap operas. That's a, that's a good example of today's soap opera. So melodrama, though, didn't catch on throughout all of Europe, but it flourished in Paris. So many theaters actually perform popular melodramas along the Boulevard de crime which is in the gate section, I think, um, which actually, if you look at it, it says Boulevard of Crime. Now, however, towards the end of the 1850s, melodrama kind of became out of fashion, partly due to the rebuilding of Paris in around 1862. Also, in the, 18, the the 1820s into the 1830s, there was also the rise of neoclassical theater and romanticism, which actually came at odds with melodrama in the middle of the 1800s. So many French authors who adopted Romanticism, which actually started in Germany, as a way to reach back to its historical roots and giving rise to romantic nationalism. Some of these famous French authors were Alexandre Dumas, Georges Sand, Alfred de Musset, and Victor Hugo, which in fact, Hugo himself in 1830 would take center stage in a theater riot of the Romantics versus the Neoclassicists. So by 1830, the Comédie Francaise, which were the neoclassicists, had a very strong hold in French theater, but people were wanting to have the romanticisms come forth and the melodramas and have a little more variety and just the neoclassics were a little more strict in their performance style and plot lines. And... During the premiere of Hugo's Hernani, which came out in 1830, the neoclassicists attended with hopes of actually putting a stop to the premiere. They came as a very large crowd, many of whom were actually theater conservatives and censors, and loudly and repetitively booed the show with the intent of shutting it down. So according to their side, The romantics disobeyed classical norms of theater and tried to stop the show from running. Hugo actually had organized, I think in expecting this from the neoclassics, had organized what was called the romantic army, which is a gathering, a group of people of romantic and radical authors and performers to make sure his play actually premiered, and then this clash of quote theater factions resulted in the ending of classicism in France with the emergence of Romanticism, which is also, if you think at least in terms of classical music, the there's a, a portion of the eighteen hundreds which is referred to as Romantic classical music instead of classical, new classical classical music, which was towards the early very early 1800s and back into the 1700s however even though romanticism won the day it didn't last very long as by the 1840s the theater of common sense or naturalism had replaced it and would kind of be the predominant theater genre of sorts that ran into the 1890s so naturalism was kind of the everyday but as we stated before and i will state in my next section when i go over performances at the gignal there was a lot of censor strict censorship even if you were talking about the everyday you didn't have certain type of characters on stage you did not have blood and gore you prostitutes as a character were not allowed on stage and various other things like that the 1890s changed it all
0: back to the theater and its creators There were several directors of the theater, obviously starting with Oscar Matinier himself, who was the founder. And Oscar Matinier uh, was born on January 17th, 1859. And he became a playwright. But before he was a playwright, he actually worked for the police, which his father did. Kind of followed in his dad's footsteps. And while he was there, he also wrote naturalist novels on the side, which is kind of what which is what got him into theater. And one of them was Mademoiselle Fifi, which after he bought the building, which would become the Théâtre du Grand Dignal, would become a play there. And only a year later, Matinier would sell the theater after he bought it in 1897, sorry. In 1898, after he sold the theater, he sold it to Max Mori, who became the new director, of course. And this is when the shows took a real turn into horror. And under Maury's directorship, the shows and theater turned into these real terrifying things. And they were so terrifying that Maury had to hire a doctor to be on site during the shows because people would pass out. They'd just, in the seat one minute, on the floor the next. Fun times. And during this time, most of these plays were written by Andre Delord, who, who Maury found. And Andre Delord was known as Come on, Melissa. You know the answer to this. You know the answer to this.
1: The Prince of Terror.
0: Yes, and he's the one that wrote the plays. And he is actually known to have worked on plays together with his therapist.
1: You're writing horror plays with your experimental psychologist.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Alfred Benet. Am I pronouncing that right? Benet. Benet. Okay. Yeah and Binet is the one to known to have played a role in the creation of experimental psychology experimental psychology people this is like something wrong up here something's wrong up in the brain like this is this is also the time when insanity the idea of the study of insanity was actually beginning to become a study and real notes and documentation was actually beginning to be taken at this time before it was just oh you're thrown into a a, uh uh what are those houses called asylums yes and you're just thrown in there and you're you're there's nothing else they can do for you because you're insane
1: Mm -hmm. quote unquote i i know i've shared this with you before and i feel like it's something we should put on our instagram and or facebook but i've sent you a picture before of 1870s reasons for locking people in insane asylums
0: Oh, I have to go looking for that then.
1: No, I'll send you, a, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the text. But I think we should post that because it's fun to read.
0: <laughs> so, so this is when like all that theater that Melissa is talking about and, and the horror of it, which she will actually talk about, is, is being done. This is what attracted people. This is the time is under Mori that people really, really came to the Theater du Grand Goudenau during this time between 1898 and 1914 because in 1914 Maury said bye-bye and left the theater and Camille Choisy became the de- director. The- huh <laughs> It isn't huh? Choisy. Huh? Choisy. Yeah: It's spelled C H O I S Y. don't And I'm American who does not speak French. Do not expect me to understand the difference. (laughs) Give me Hebrew and I'm fine. Give me French and I'm going to screw it up. But it's fine. As long as you know who I'm talking about. And his contribution to the theater actually pertained to the special effects. This is when special effects became real top notch. Oh, yeah. Your lighting, your props, all that stuff became a real focal point under Shwasi. Camille, I'm going to call him Camille. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the lighting, the sound, everything was, was down to a pinpoint under Camille. And fear was definitely still a, a major factor. They still were doing the fear plays, the plays that instilled fear. And you needed a doctor on site to make sure you were okay when you passed out. However... They also would do, like, plays that would give relief from the scary and the emotion of fear. They started to, like, throw in some comedic plays every so often. So that it wasn't all just, I'm so scared of everything. And then in 1930, 30, Jacques Chauvin became the director. And the plays went from gory, like, just physically gory sight-wise as well, to psychologically messing with you. Like... You you, you may have fainted from the sight of the really awesome and amazing prosthetic on this person who's dying to I'm fainting because I'm psychologically screwed in the head and now I can't sleep at night. That's fun. That's fun. Either way, you're having nightmares. Mm-hmm. And it, it actually started to become too much under Joven. And, and many people just weren't coming as often. And then later on, World War II or the war to end all wars hit. That's eight, nine years later in under Jovin. So the theater began to struggle then, but I'm gonna get into that in more detail later. Go into those really gory performances and props, please. You're welcome. Wait,
1: I can't wait. Well- uh, just a, a quick bit before I go into that. Um, the portion where she's talking about the horror and then comedy, was developed in a way they were, they were called hot and cold showers. And you would have one or two horror plays, followed by one or two comedy plays, and then maybe one more horror play, followed by maybe one additional comedy play. So it was a way for the audience to get their thrills, but also a way for the audience to understand that what they're watching is not real. It just looks real because many of the actors that were on stage having these horrific things that happened to them, or at least look like they're happening to them because the prosthetics were amazing and quite believable. They would come onto the stage after the horror play was over to show the audience. This didn't actually happen to me. I didn't have my eye gouged out or my hand cut off, you know, I'm okay. And then the following comedy plays right after the horror plays, some of those same actors would then acting in those comedy plays to give the audience a much more, I guess, security to know that the, the actor didn't actually get hurt on stage. Another thing about the theater itself is it's quite small. As we said, it holds between 150 to 250 ish seatings. The stage itself is seven meters by seven meters, which is roughly 23 feet by 23 feet. It's not big. And in fact, it's it's rather quite small. It's like a black box theater, essentially. So you're not gonna have a whole lot of performers on at one time, maybe three or four, but you are going to use the entire size of the, the stage itself to your advantage. So going into performances and the props that were used, also you've made it this far in the episode. Quick disclaimer before I go into the horrors and sadism of this theater. Again, if you are we are going to get very, very detailed. Again, if you were squeamish or this subject is kind of not your style, I would maybe skip the latter half of what I'm going to, or skip what I'm going to talk about in this section, maybe skip ahead about 15 minutes, if anything, because it's going to get quite graphic in terms of what was done at this theater. So one of the most popular performances at the theater was a, a play called A Crime and a Madhouse," which was written by Benet, and it premiered in 1925. And the characters are such, there is Madame Robin and she is having a conversation at night with a nun who works at the asylum that Madame Robin is actually in. And during the conversation, then the nun asks her, why are you still here if you were cured? To which the Madame replies, It doesn't help that you've been locked up for years. People on the outside of the asylum are actually rather suspicious of you. Also, I am happy to hear that little Louisa is going home. I sure like her a lot better than the two older women she rooms with, the hunchback and the Normandy woman. Didn't one of those women lose a daughter and that's why she exhibits psychopathic behavior towards Louise? Exposition, exposition, exposition. So later in on the conversation, the madame mentions did it ever occur to you that one eye the child murderer shouldn't be sleeping next to the children to which the nun replies don't worry about it one eye she's been paralyzed for six years it's perfectly okay that no one guards the female patients at night and with that the conversation ends the nun locks all the women in their cells and goes off to pray for the evening the the play then cuts to louise's cell so there's louise and the Hunchback and the Normandy woman, all in their respective beds and their cells. And Louise is asleep, and the Normandy woman and the Hunchback are whispering to each other. When Louise wakes up to hear them talking, she asks them, what are they talking about? And the two women turn to her and say, nothing. Whilst at the same time that this conversation is happening, one eye is seen rushing into their cell unlocked and immediately begins to hold down Louise with one hand over her mouth to keep her screams quiet. One eye justifies this by saying, when Louise went crazy, a bird flew into her head, and now was the time to let the bird out by removing her eyes. And with this, the hunchback and the Normandy woman ate one eye with a moistened cloth placed over Louise's face. Within one eye stabs both of Louise's eyes out with one of the nun's knitting needles that she had stolen. And theatrical fashion, Louise, after having been maimed, stands on the bed, the cloth falling away to reveal her eyeless face to the audience before falling over dead. The hunchback and the Normandy woman are now starting to wonder where is this bird that was supposed to have been released from Louise's head? No bird coming forth, the two women now bind one eye drag her to the nearby burning stove where they then shove her head into it burning her face off and killing her play then ends with two nuns opening the door to the darkened cell which is now quiet and when they don't hear anything they go hmm all right close the door and then go off on their way to prayer and that's just the one play So other such popular plays were The System of Dr. Gondron and Professor Plume, which is actually an adaptation from a story by Poe about an asylum being overrun by the inmates. Another one was The Man of Night, which was a short adaptation of Necrophilia, which is actually based on the crimes of Sergeant Francois Bertrand, who was the vampire of Montparnasse. And then prior to World War I, in terms of general performances at the theater, many of the deaths at the Gignol were by, by sword, dagger, or strangulation. After Schwazi was brought in as director, the theater actually, as we mentioned before, became much more gory. So during his tenure, which ran to about 1930, I think, the actors would, would die on stage by a variety of different happenstances dissolved in acid, blown up, electrocuted, limbs torn from the body, and even one instance was eaten by a puma. I want to know the backgrounds on that one. So the biggest actress during the entire run of the Grand Guignol was Paula Maxa, or otherwise known as just Maxa, and became also known as the most assassinated woman in the world. It is actually said that she died in over 60 different ways during her 15-ish I'm sorry she 1919 to 1926 so like seven eight long career she died 60 different ways in eight years and possibly up to 10,000 times So ways that she could possibly have died on stage was to be shot, strangled, scalped, guillotined, quartered burned, hanged, cut into pieces with surgical tools whipped, poisoned, Stung by a scorpion, it started that look on your face is absolute disgust.
0: Stung by a scorpion? We went that far. You, yes. didn't, you missed the
1: part about being eaten by a cougar.
0: No, I, I heard that part. Didn't miss it. Just like, really? A scorpion?
1: Might as well put cobra on the stage too.
0: Yeah. Where's the snake? Where's the snake? Don't forget the
1: alligator. I don't know if the alligator would fit on the stage with the other actors. <laughs> So there's actually even one report of one of her deaths where her, quote, corpse rotted away. One review of this display wrote, quote, 200 nights in a row, she simply decomposed on stage in front of an audience which wouldn't have exchanged its seats for all the gold in the Americas. The operation lasted a good two minutes during which the young woman transformed little by little into an abominable corpse. I want to know the prosthetics on this one. So the biggest play for Maxa was titled The Torture Garden, and it aired in 1922. The play was actually written by erotic novelist Octave Mirbeau, and the main character is a man named Jean Marchand, and he's in China to spy on some subversive activities. While there, he finds and falls in love with the main female lead, Clara, played by Maxa, And this character is also a spy, a femme fatale, a double agent, and Guignol style, a sadistic and violent bisexual predator who has a penchant for elaborate torture methods. So early in the play, Clara convinces Jean to go with her to the unspoken treasures and pleasures of the titular torture garden. And one quote from Clara, the torture garden is quote, beautiful, I've seen prisoners hanged back in England, anarchists garroted in Spain. In Russia, I saw a group of soldiers flog a young girl to death. I've even seen a beautiful young woman fed to a lion in a cage. But nothing is as frightening, so terribly beautiful as what they have here the torture garden. She goes on to state when I see the conflicts being punished, I don't know what comes over me. I'm filled with such extraordinary desires. It goes so deep into my body that I would love you so intensely tonight. I would be so wild. And later on in the play, Clara actually makes advances onto a local girl named t who rejects Clara's advances. For this disrespect, essentially, Clara actually orders the head torture of the garden, T-Mao, to punish T-Ba by having him slowly peel strips of her skin off. So in order to actually give this appearance in terms of prosthetics onto the stage, prior to the actress playing T-Ba going on stage, the effects artist actually stuck long, thin pieces of, of adhesive plaster. At the level of her shoulder blades, the plaster was also colored red at the bottom to give the look of blood and the rest of the the plaster was dyed to match the actress's skin tone. At the moment of torture, the actress would then be pinned to the ground backside up. T-Mao would then simulate cutting slits on her back with a prop knife. The knife was actually concealed with a vial of blood so that her back would then be bloodied giving the illusion of maiming her when he cut into her her back he would then tear the plaster from her back revealing what looked like raw flesh underneath just bleh. the play actually ends in revenge with t able to gouge out claire's eyes with red hot needles um it's not recorded however that this particular gouging how this was achieved but there are records of other instances from the effects team although most of the effects were closely guarded secrets to the audience it looked as if the attacker was literally stabbing the victim's eye with the needle like you kind of would if you were giving somebody a lobotomy for the actors the attacker was actually squeezing a concealed very small pouch or bulb of fake blood onto the cheek of the victim. The victim would then take a small amount of Vaseline and fake blood that was concealed under a table or various other hiding places on stage, rub it on their cheek, slowly bringing it down their face with their fingers as in to like, oh, my eye, my eye, oh, the blood. So you're working with the actor stabbing the blood pouch that's on your face. And then now you're taking more blood and running it down your face to make it look like your, your face is bleeding from yeah. the, the eye, eye gouging. And if there was also a scene that involved eye eating or other organs, and most often than not there was, they were animal organs. There was an actor that was made to eat an eye. It was actually a, 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 an eye made of candy or cake. From a local confectioner that was working with the theater another early favorite very early favorite of the guignol was a play called at the telephone and this might this general plot might sound familiar to some people so the at the telephone goes a businessman travels to paris where he receives several phone calls while he's there from his wife saying that she and the children have been hearing strange noises in the house since he left the businessman dismisses his wife's claims saying that she's just imagining it until her last phone call which at this time while speaking to his wife over the phone he not only hears loud noises in the background that sounds like people breaking into the house he also stays on long enough to hear his family being strangled and killed to death to our modern ears for those of us who enjoy horror movies It doesn't sound particularly scary, but the play debuted in 1902. And if you think about the technology that was going on back then, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone just a handful of years before. And so around the turn of the century, they were just slowly becoming a commodity throughout all the major cities. So now you're using new technology to also incorporate it into a horrific setting into your plays. I'm sure, given that it's now October, many of us have grown up watching the Adams Family movies with Christina Ricci and Angelica Houston and all that, and I know is quite a big fan of the movies. If anyone recalls the scene about halfway through the movie where Wednesday and Pugsley are on stage performing Shakespeare, and Uncle Fester has actually outfitted them with prosthetics and blood packs, when they end up slicing each other with the swords and blood squirts and gushes out all over the audience that's the kind of a callback to the Gignal. uh it wasn't common for blood it was common for blood to look like it was gushing it was just not common for the audience to be trenched like you would have in that one scene in the adams family but there's always the possibility if you're sitting in the very front row so the main effects director at the Gignal was paul ratio and i couldn't find a whole lot about who he was, but I can find a bit about what he did. He was the main stage manager at the Gino during its heyday, especially. And not only did he design the makeup and special effects, he was also in charge of the lighting for the theater, as well as the sound effects. And on occasion could also be seen on stage as various characters. Some of his effects would be making it look like a dagger, not only pierced a victim, but that it protruded out the other side. Acid burns, severed heads that ended up rolling on stage, conducting brain surgery, and various things like that. His quote recipe for realistic viscera were red rubber hoses and sponges that had been soaked in actual animal blood. And as I mentioned, small pouches would be used in the case of eye gouging. Sometimes the blood, because some of the mixtures involved real blood. It would even curdle, and they would have different shades of blood, depending on whether it was fresh or old blood. So in one play, La Bessin d'Anouis, a woman named Jean, uh, so Jean, is disfigured by a man named Henri who throws acid on her face before they both face the audience with Henry choking Jean to death. So we don't know the exact method of this, quote, sleight of hand that the actor had to do to apply the makeup while on stage, because there was a lot of, in the moment, Makeup special effects, typically, but there is a hypo- a hypothesis by an author on the book about the history of the theater, and it's quote: the solution we found was to transfer the focus of attention from jean to Henri immediately after he has poured acid onto her face. The quote: acid was in fact stage blood used in case anyone caught a momentary glimpse glimpse of jean before covering her face with her hands and writhing in agony. Henri, meanwhile, moved center stage, increasingly manic in his moments of revenge became the focus of attention. This offered Jean the opportunity to reach under the drape, which covered the chaise lounge to a dish containing a mixture of raspberry jam, stage blood, and Vaseline, which she was able to smell on her face before finally revealing herself to the audience at the play's climactic moment. According to a guignol expert, the theater professor a, a, and theater professor at UC Berkeley, Mel Gordon, the blood actually had a base of heated glycerin and carmine, which is a beetle similar, I think, similarly similarly used to the cochineal beetle. Uh, the beetle would then give the base the red color it needed to look like blood. The glycerin would give it a shine, which would be able to be seen under the stage lights as well, rather than just like a, a mat, like a gloss. And on occasions, if the audience members had a good ear, they might even hear one of the backstage techies say, "Vit Armand, warm up the blood quickly, warm up the blood later in the years, towards the, in the 50 forties and into the fifties, a type of cellulose was used called methyl cellulose. This is actually the same stuff that was used for ectoplasm and ghostbusters. And it thickens in cold water and gels in heat, so it gives the appearance of flow. So if the play called for thickening blood, typically jam was used, currant or raspberry. And if they wanted something that flowed, methylcellulose was used. So according to articles from the time of Charles Nonan, who was the last special effects director uh, at the Gignol, as well as one of its last makeup artists and the last director of the theater as a whole. He had a variety of ways of actually recreating the gory details. So when we said Javim came in towards the latter end of the 20s and he kicked Maxit out saying that, you're upstaging everybody. No one else has an opportunity to shine, you're gone. And Choisy wanted to stay as well too, but they just didn't get along so he quit. And then Jovan actually eventually left and someone else came in, I think right before Nunan. But after Jovan, they tried to kind of bring back the heyday. So even Maxa came back for a bit before actually, unfortunately, ruining her vocal cords from all the screaming. Essentially, she is the original queen, literally. So towards the last 15 years or so of the theater, they did try to go back to its heyday It just wasn't the same as we've said after World War II. But as I mentioned before, they would replicate organs and various vitra viscera. There was also a trove of trick props and devices to give the illusion of maiming and destruction. These would be things such as rubber knives, strategic steam pipes, tubes, small vials of thick blood, of course. Sometimes the daggers would be raided to squirt blood because it had a hidden vial within the shaft. Many of the pieces of furniture on the stage would hold fake blood or any other gory props that were needed to give the illusion of bodily harm. And then there were often plays where limbs were chopped off. And Mel Gordon actually explains how this may have been done. What? Chopped off limbs. They say that there was one role where Maxa played and she was cut up into 86 different pieces but I don't, uh, there, there's one picture where it's it, obviously it's staged, but there's one picture of what looks like a man cutting his, his hand off. So cutting off a man's hand is easier than it sounds, according to Mel Gordon. Stiffen a glove with glue water so it holds its shape and paint it like a real hand. The actor wearing the glove should be able to move his fingers a bit. When the hand is chopped off the quote chopper, or uh, when the hand is chopped off, the quote chopper removes the glove and the choppy moves his hand up his cuff, which is reinforced with a cardboard tube fitted with a blood pack. The stiffened glove should hold its shape perfectly as the unwilling amputee rises in pain, coming from an article in Callboard from 1996. And although at the end of every play, as I have mentioned this before, the actors would come back on stage to show everyone that they were unharmed and would often be used as characters in the comedies following the horror shows, because you have all this different things going on all at once, there was always a possibility of mishaps. And one writer from the 50s describes some of these near deaths and accidents as, quote, naturally, all this gruesomeness is sheer illusion, but the sham is not always devoid of risk. Once during an actress's simulated hanging, the protective device broke and she almost did get hanged. Another recently was burned by the flame of a revolver and orgy in the lighthouse. The heroine suffered even more. On one night, she almost caught fire. On another night, her male partner began to live his part a bit too much and beat her up in earnest so that she was forced to go off to the country to nurse a nervous breakdown. Now, one thing I found Really interesting. I think this was mostly done towards the tail end after the heyday, certainly, of the Gignol. So we mentioned that they would have doctors on staff. There is one anecdote with that saying that they told the audience and marketed it saying that they were going to hire a doctor and nurses on staff in case anyone became sick or had a heart attack or fainted. We would have a doctor on staff to help out. And at one particular gory scene during one particular play, a man fainted and they said, a house doctor, we need a house doctor. Where's the house doctor? They ran around looking for the house doctor. The man revived and said, I'm sorry, sir. We couldn't find the house doctor. He goes, I am the house doctor. But whether or not doctors were actually on staff is a whole nother mystery for this, because sometimes it was just marketing and we're not sure if it was actually true still great marketing and speaking of there's an instance that happened in around march to april of 1950 that was put on as a marketing employee by the theater to kind of drum up some more business because it would only be around for about another 12 years at this point so instead of specific marketing campaigns on posters or billboards or by word of mouth in one instance there was the kidnapping of a 22-year-old Gignol actress named Nicole Rich in 1950. The story goes on Wednesday, March 29th, sometime between the second and third act of a play called No Orchids for Miss Blandish, which is actually an adaptation of the mystery novel by James Hadley Chase and which an heiress is kidnapped and then raped by gangsters. Riche vanished. Stagehands at the theater told the manager that she was given a note, read it, went pale and then walked outside and disappeared. It was announced to the audience that she had vanished under strange circumstances, which apparently involved a strange man leaving her several notes. The theater then closed for the evening to allow the police to investigate and all the patrons were given a full refund. When the police arrived, they were shown the notes, which read, Mademoiselle, my excuses for bothering you, but I wish to see you urgently about your mother. I shall await you in the passage outside, best wishes. It has also said that there were two other notes accusing the play and the theater to be immoral. The next day, as the show continued, the new actress in the leading role after the play said that she received several threatening phone calls after her performance. Two days later, on April 1st, Riche walked into a local police station in the outfit she was wearing. It was said that she was wearing when she vanished, which was like a feathered boa kind of jacket kind of negligee-esque look and told them a bizarre story of quote being held captive by Puritans who kept her secluded in the woods and scolded her for acting a immoral place. She went on to tell them that she'd been found in the Fontainebleau forest by some kind gypsies who gave her a nice jacket to keep her warm and She then ran into a man named George at a hotel whose last name she did not know. And taking pity on her, George drove her to the police station, but then drove off. Police interviewing her immediately did not believe her story. And she did eventually tell them it was all a hoax to draw up business for the theater. She was charged with contempt, but I'm sure she probably was well compensated by the theater as the headlines, which were worldwide headlines gave the story a lot of exposure, bringing more business to the theater. And there is a link and my sources that leads you to a newspaper clipping for it.
0: Gross. No one was eating during any of that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're gonna talk about the end, the true end of the theater because the theater did close unfortunately. What we know as World War II or the war to end all wars started and ended 1939-1940 to 1945. It became a struggle for the theater to stay open. People were not really attending. I mean they're they're in the middle of the war and trying to survive Nazi occupation in France. However, when the Nazis did become occupied in France, the theater became rather popular amongst the Nazis, which really didn't do the theater any favors when the war ended and the Nazis lost the war given nazi mentality to torture it doesn't surprise me to be honest exactly but you that that patronage when the nazis lost the war it didn't sit well with many many people so while taking the nazis money helped them in the short term it didn't help them in the long term and when world war ii ended people really stopped visiting the theater they were not happy with the fact that the grand guignol took the money of the nazi powers especially when the axis powers lost now just to give you an idea the axis powers were mussolini the japanese emperor at the time and obviously hitler they were known as the axis powers and this left the theater's reputation basically in shatters and people who did survive the war and really understood the horrors of war, as well as the horrors that came along with the war, like the Holocaust specifically, the idea of blood gore and torture was rather unappealing at the end of it. You didn't, you, you'd seen enough in the six years that this war went on. People had seen enough and did not want to go back. So they, they just were no longer patrons of, of the Grand Gignol. They just no longer attended And another factor that led to the lack of patrons included that movies were really becoming a big attraction and pastime for people. Theater began to lose its appeal instead of the, and people began to become appealed to the movies rather instead. And this all eventually led to the theater closing its doors permanently in 1962. And I actually have a quote from one of my sources, which is actually the Grand Guignol from the last director, Charles Nonon, of the theater. And he stated in an interview at the end, quote, we could never compete with Buchenwald. Before the war, everyone believed that what happened on stage was purely imaginary. Now we know that these things and worse are possible. Knowing that places like Treblinka, Buchenwald, Dachau, Auschwitz, auschwitz Barkenau. and having lived in it survived the occupation of France at the time horror just had zero appeal because it, it just people wanted things that lifted their spirits rather than brought them fear anymore because they'd been living with it for so long and therefore the Grand Guignol closed its doors in 1962 forever.
1: Side note it actually is still a theater to this day, and the International Visual Theater, which caters to theaters for the deaf and people who can read sign language.
0: Yay, something good came out of that.
1: It's also brightly yellow colored, so quite cheerful.
0: <laughs> it's it's nice to know that, you know, since it closed its doors at the end of the war, long after the end of the war, like 19 years later, It it's nice to know that. The building stayed a theater and and it just became something better. That's nice. I think a positive came out of that. So, well, that, I
1: think everyone was sufficiently
0: grossed out. I will say, they're grossed out doing the research because I read some <laughs> of the stuff that you were talking about and I was like, I, I, I mean, be nasty.
1: Okay. The, 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 there's, so there's the hit, there's history goes bump, right? And their tagline is history for the theater of the mind. When I was doing my research, I kept going. Theater of the mind. If the mind you have in mind is that of Marquis de
0: Sade, yes. Yeah, yeah. But that'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. We hope to see you next week as we continue to trek
1: through. Oh, wait. No, wait. Next week, we're trekking through cemeteries. That's still history. It is. Any tap of files listening, come join us next week. <laughs> Maybe I'll give a little research on the one across from my house. Yeah. We'll see what sure. I can find out. all right well that we will sign off for today and we'll see you next week bye